If last week's story in Goliath is one of Scripture's most inspiring, today's story of David is probably one of Scripture's most tragic. Uh, the, the people, they had put their trust and they had put the hope in that David was what they needed as a king. And David ended up breaking that trust. And it's a lesson to all of us that, you know, uh, what we really need, it, it doesn't come in on a horse. It isn't found in a political solution. Our Savior doesn't ride on Air Force One. Because every single human leader is sinful. That we all mess up. That we all make mistakes. Even somebody like David. You know, Nate just sang that, that beautiful song that, God, I want my heart to be just like your heart. And Scripture actually describes that David is a man after God's own heart, but yet David messes up, and he messes up big time. And again, it's just this, this reminder to us that we can't put our hope and our trust in human leadership. The person that we need to put our trust in is in Jesus. Salvation comes in nobody else but through Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the one we need to put our hope and our faith and our trust in. So I want to look at the story of David as we continue through the series called Kings and Kingdoms and see how David did end up falling. So if you got a Bible, you want to follow along today, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's where we're going to hang out today. As you're turning there, let me remind you that throughout this series, we've been sort of looking at how David sort of rose up to power. And last week we discovered that it was in the pasture, that it was out in the pasture that that God had formed and shaped David's heart to become the king that he wanted him to be. But then ultimately, again, David does end up messing up. So after Saul, the, the king that people had originally wanted, here comes David. David's now been the leader for a couple years. He's had a couple military successes, but he's also gotten a little bit complacent. His hunger for God has started to wane. That's where we'll pick up the story. 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1, it says, In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Ramah. However, David did what? David did what? He, He stayed behind in Jerusalem. Notice that David, the king, who's supposed to be out leading his troops, has decided to stay behind and send somebody else out in his place. David the warrior has become David the complacent. David the warrior has become David the relaxer. And you know, there's a famous saying, you're all familiar with it, that idle hands are what? The, the devil's playground. Idle hands are the devil's playground, and that's exactly what's about to happen for David. He's supposed to be out at war, leading the troops, but instead he's back, he's lounging around, he's not doing anything, he has lost his meaning in life, he's lost his purpose in life, he's forgotten who it is that God has created him to be, and guess what happens? Anytime you or I are in that place that we forget our purpose, we don't have meaning in our lives, we have that void, guess who's going to step in and try to fill that void for you? Right, Satan. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. Satan's going to come in and he's going to tempt David. Look at verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, 
David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. Now, Scripture usually doesn't comment on somebody's physical attractiveness, but in this case, it says that David, he sees this woman, and she isn't just beautiful. She's what? It says, unusually beautiful. I mean, like, supermodel beautiful. Like, Lisa Thurston, beautiful. Well, okay, maybe not that beautiful, but th this girl's hot, right? And so David, he, he notices her. He notices her out there. And again, the, the problem is he had put himself in a place to be tempted. Not only is he not out doing what he should be doing, but now he's in a place that he shouldn't be because I suspect that David knew that from the roof he'd be able to spot this area where the women went to bathe. And he's put himself in a really, really bad situation. Look at verse 3. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told... She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now this messenger very subtly sort of tries to warn David here a little bit. Because he doesn't just say, this is Bathsheba. He says, this is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. And you see, what happens is, many times when we're sexually tempted... What we end up doing is we dehumanize the other person. We make them the object of our pleasure. We don't see them as a human. We objectify them. And that's what David is going to do here, is he's going to objectify her. But this person's like, look, 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 look. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. Don't forget she's a real person. You know, many times when people get caught up in sexual sin and, and we end up objectifying, you know, people, we're, we're like, how could people do that? And I think the, the best illustration of that is, you know, with the Nazis. Because people, they're, they're like, how could the Nazis just, like, kill off millions and millions and millions of Jews? And it's very simple. They stop seeing them as humans. And as soon as they stop seeing them as humans, as real people, they're like, we can do to them whatever we want to do. And that's what, again, what happens with sexual temptation is if you stop seeing the person as an actual person and just an object of, uh, of your pleasure to fulfill you in some way, to satisfy your longings and your wants and your desires, then you're going to sin. You're going to be in a really, really bad place, just as David was. I've shared with you that, you know, right after I first became a Christian back in uh, 93, that it was pornography that was the thing that just really had its teeth in me, that God changed me in so many other ways, but there was this, this period where it was like, man, I, I didn't want to do this anymore, but I just it kept happening, so I had to go to extremes to get away from it. And I've shared some of those extremes of things that I've done throughout my life, you know, accountability and, and, and software filtering and all kinds of things, uh, even to this day that I still have there because if there was one area that I would get tripped up in, that's the area. You know, I, I could go spend all day at a bar and I'm not going to be tempted to drink. I, I, there's a lot of things that could trip up people in this world, but it's still this one that even, you know, 25 years later, that I've got to be very, very careful about. So I have all these safeguards and, and measures in my life. 
And one of the things that helped me to break free was this whole thing of being able to see the person as a person. That every single video, every single picture that, you know what, that's somebody's daughter. That this person really, that really matters. That behind every pornographic image, there's the heart of a broken father that's on the other side of that. No father is holding their little two-year-old or their little seven-year-old and swinging him around going, wow, I really hope one day you grow up and take all your clothes off and have sex in front of other people on film. No father hopes that for his child. And so we, we've, we've got to make sure that, that we see the other people as, as people. And whether it's pornography or, or sex outside of marriage, premarital sex or having an affair, You've got to realize that this is a real person. It's somebody's daughter. It's somebody's wife. Or ladies, it's you know, somebody's son, somebody's husband. David, he's full of lust, and he doesn't see Bathsheba as the daughter or as a wife. He simply sees her as an object to satisfy his own desires. And in verse 4, we read this. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Now, let me just summarize the next couple of verses for you. He's having this affair with Bathsheba, and he gets her pregnant. It's like, oops, didn't mean to do that. And anytime you're caught up in sin, you're going to try to cover your tracks whether it's sexual sin or any type of sin. You, you try to cover it up in some way. And that's what David decides to do. He brings in one of his messengers and he says, hey, I need you to go out on the front lines of the battle. Remember, which is where David should have been. He says, I need you to go out on the front lines of the battle and I need you to bring in Uriah, the Hittite. Bring, bring him to me. I, I need to share something with him. And so he brings in Bathsheba's husband and he makes up some sort of excuse for why he had to call him in. He's like, well, hey, you know, why are you here? Why don't you just spend the night here? You know, you can go back tomorrow to the front lines. You know, go see your wife, you know, make out with your wife. David thinks that, you know, Uriah will go sleep with his wife, and then when she shows up pregnant, everybody will say, oh, yeah, it was that time that Uriah was back from the front lines, and everything will be good. But Uriah is like, you know what? My brothers, they're, they're still out there on the front line. How, how dare I bring any pleasure to myself? I, I can't do that. They can't come home and sleep with their wives. And so he refuses to go, to go home that night. So the next morning rolls around. David's like, oh boy. Um, I know, I know. He's like, before you go back to the front lines, why don't you come have dinner with me tonight? David brings him in for dinner, and David just starts loading him up. He's like, hey, you want a beer? Hey, hey, you, you want a screwdriver? <laughs> He's like, how about a martini? I mean, he is just like loading him up on alcohol. He's getting him drunk. And the hope is, because the night before, Uriah had said, oh, I can't go sleep with my wife, because he was sort of in his right mind. David's trying to get him so drunk that he's like, oh, boy, I'm going home. <laughs> But Scripture tells us that even in the midst of that drunkenness, Uriah's like, I can't go home and sleep with my wife. 
They were like, oh, man. Um, he's like, Uriah, can you come see me? I'm going to send you back to the front lines today, but I've got this note that I've written, and David had sealed it with the, with the, the, uh, the, the seal of the king. He says, I need you to take this note back to your commanding officer. What Uriah doesn't realize is that he's actually carrying his own death sentence because what David had written on that was to Uriah's commanding officer that I want you to put Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest and then I want you to pull the troops back and allow Uriah to be killed. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah gets out there. He gives this message to his commanding officer. The commanding officer reads it. He sends Uriah out. And in the midst of all of this, a couple of Uriah's buddies there on the front line, even though they had been commanded to come back, they stay there with him. And not only does Uriah die, but a couple of his friends do as well. David the courageous. David the shepherd boy. David the giant slayer. David the man after God's own heart has now become David the adulterer and David the murderer. Now that Uriah is dead, David takes Bathsheba as his own wife and he assumes that, okay, well, people think that she just got pregnant during our honeymoon. It's like, man, that was a close one. He thinks that he's covered his tracks. But listen carefully. Sexual sin, any sin, really, for that matter, you may be able to hide it from other people, but you can't hide it from God because God sees everything. And so as we skip down then to verse 27, it says, Bathsheba gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. You know, up to this point in life, David had lived a very charmed life. God had always been on his side. God had always blessed him. But this story is really a, a turning point in David's story. Because now that little infant baby boy is going to end up dying. Another one of David's sons ends up raping one of David's daughters. And then another one of David's sons ends up murdering that son in retaliation. Later on, yet another one of David's sons would try to overthrow David as the king. And that son would be killed as a result. So again, this one thing here, this one incident, just throws David's family into complete turmoil. And the question is, what, what can we learn from all of this? What are some lessons we can take away from the story that I just shared? Well, a couple things. The first one is this on your outline. I must realize that sexual sin will destroy my life. And, you know, we see this all the time, whether it be celebrities or politicians that just these, you know, they have an affair or they get caught up in something they shouldn't be caught up in and it just destroys their life. We even see this with pastors. There's a pretty famous pastor that within the last couple of months, it's been revealed that, you know, he was going through a lot of different things and, and, and just harassing and, and doing things and it's cost him his ministry. It's destroyed his life. And you've got to realize that sexual sin, and, and I've said this before, all sin is fun. And if it isn't fun for you, then you're not doing it right, okay? Sin is fun. But again, sin has consequences. 
Sin will destroy your life. And again, sexual sin especially, it will destroy your life. You've got to get to the place where you realize that before it's too late. Many years ago, I had a, a guy come to me and his wife had caught him right on the verge of committing a very, very major sexual sin. And she gave him the chance to come in and, and meet with me. And all he could think about was just how good this sin would be. And just lust was full in his heart. He's like, I just need to do this. And I was like, it's going to destroy your life. In fact, I said, here's what I want you to do. I gave him a notebook. And I said, I want you to fill up this notebook with as many things as possible that you can think of, of what bad could go wrong if you go ahead and commit this sin. And he sat there, and he was incredulous at first. He's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I was like, look, you've got to do this. And finally, I convinced him, and I said, let's get together in another couple days. I think it was like three days later. And I want you to fill this as full as you can of all the bad things that could happen. You know what? Thankfully, he took my advice, and he came back, and he probably had close to half a dozen or you know, so pages just full of, I could lose my marriage. My daughters could hate me, and you know, I'll get a divorce, and, and I won't be able to watch them growing up. He, he even got this specific as saying that um, later on when my daughters go to get married, maybe they'll so hate me that they won't allow me to walk them down the aisle. And this particular sin was so severe that it could have cost him his job. That's how bad this thing was. And so he talked about that and that I could end up homeless. And he, he talked about things like, uh, you know, dishonoring his, his parents and he talked about the, the spiritual aspects of how it could impact him and that he could end up in hell for this. And it was amazing, just that very simple exercise, it changed him. It scared him straight. And that's been about 10 years ago or so. And that guy to this day is doing great. His marriage is great. His daughters love him. His daughters don't even know that this even happened. But you've got to get to that place because, listen, it's easier to make the list today than it is to experience the list tomorrow. Does that make sense? If you're involved in sexual sin or any sin for that matter, make the list today before it costs you, before it ruins your life. Because Scripture says your sin will find you out and that you will reap what you sow. So again, make the list. Write down the effects. And as you're doing that, don't forget the, the mental aspects of it and the emotional aspects, the spiritual aspects of it. There's a book that came out a couple years ago. It was called Hooked, and it was about the effects that pornography and, and sex outside of marriage has on people. And this was scientists that they were just sort of studying what happens. And what they discovered is that it rewires the brain, especially pornography. It rewires the brain of how you think about relationships. And it ends up damaging your relationships. And what's fascinating about this particular study was it wasn't done by Christian scientists. Because, you know, Christian scientists could be accused of, okay, you're just sort of coming to this conclusion for moral reasons. These were secular scientists that they wanted to see, is sex outside of marriage bad for you? 
is pornography bad for you? And their conclusion was, absolutely it is. Here's what they said, I quote, You can no more try out sex than you can try out birth. The very act of sex produces a new reality that cannot be undone. And they concluded this about pornography, that it destroys your ability for long-term sexual fulfillment because what you're actually doing is training your brain to say, you know what, a real body is not enough. Or just one body is not enough. Or my spouse's body is not enough. Now, ladies, let me talk to you real quick. Because <clears throat> a lot of times when we think of pornography, we just think about men. And, and it's true, like the, the visual image and, and that type of thing. Men do get caught up more in that. Some women do. But guess what, ladies? Your romance novels, your things like, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever, that's pornography. Because what pornography says, like for men, is that, all right, there is this image of a woman that you're objectifying, that you're saying that this is better than, than anything else. And, and so you're saying, I need this. And so again, men do that from a physical standpoint. But ladies, what you do when you're reading these romance novels and stuff is you're like, wish my husband was like that. I wish he was that romantic. I wish he was into this or that or the other thing. And again, all you're saying is that there's something out there that's better than what reality is. That's pornography. And so again, make your list. Write it all down. Because sexual sin, and again, any sin, will destroy your life. Number two, then, I must stay engaged in the battle. Big part of David's problem was he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to be out at war. He was supposed to be out leading the troops. But what was he doing? He was just hanging around the house. He was relaxing and, and just lounging around. And for us, we're in a spiritual battle. We're not in a physical battle like David was supposed to be, but we're in a spiritual battle each and every day. Satan is trying to destroy your life. And so you need to be in the battle. You need to be on the front lines. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, you, you come in and you serve on a Sunday. Or you're out serving in the community all week long. You know, you're, you're leading a, a life group. You're out sharing your faith with other people. You're busy doing God's work. And listen, if you're so busy doing God's work, if you're so busy fulfilling all the purposes that God has for you, you won't have time to get caught up in all these other things. I mean, think of it this way. Think of a football player. You, many of you are going to watch your favorite team today. Um, you know, some of you are going to sin, you know, with the Steelers and the Eagles and all that kind of stuff, you know. Come over to the good side, you know. But and anyway, you're going to watch football. And I want you to imagine that the, that the running back, he's got the ball and he, he's running. And in the midst of, you know, all these people trying to attack him and stuff, that he's on the gridiron, you know, it's a war out there, that he decides that as I'm running, I'm going to try to take all my clothes off. Can you imagine that? He wouldn't be able to do it. Why? Because as soon as he would stop, what would happen? He's going to get tackled. So again, if you're in the battle, it's a lot harder to take your clothes off than if you're just lying around on the couch. <laughs> Nate just got that. 
It's, I'm, being just serious. I'm being real here. If you're doing everything that God's called you to do, if you're busy about the Lord's work, you're not going to get caught up in all these other things. It's not going to be a distraction for you. So live the life that God has called you to. Listen, the problem for many, many people is not a lustful body, but a bored soul. It's not that your lust levels are just like so much greater than everybody else's levels are. It's just that that's the only outlet that you have because you're just not doing what it is that God has called you to do. So stay engaged in the battle. Here's the third thing that we can learn from David's story here, and that is that I must keep myself away from temptation. How many have ever seen the movie The Karate Kid? Classic movie, right? Karate Kid. Mr. Miyagi, right, wax on, wax off. Breeze down there, she's already doing the motions. You know, paint the fence, paint the fence. All right, there was all these great things that Mr. Miyagi did, right? One of his best things was, he said to Daniel, the best way to avoid a punch is just not be in a situation where somebody may punch you. The best way to resist temptation is just not put yourself in a place where temptation may be. See, it's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist temptation. And all of us know those areas of our lives where we're tempted. And so if you already know those things, then just don't put yourself in situations where that could possibly happen. David knew being up on that roof had the potential for trouble, but yet he did it anyway. And he probably figured, yeah, I'm going up there, but I'll be able to handle it. You ever done that before? Where you're in a, a tempting situation? You're like, yeah, I know this is going to tempt me, but I'll be fine. But then you're not. And that's exactly what happens with David. He put himself into a bad situation, and he ended up crossing the line. And, you know, I've shared that with you before. When it comes to sin, in any sin, the goal is, you know, if, if there's a line right here on the stage, and on this side I'm in sin, and this side I'm not in sin. The, the goal isn't to get it up as close to the line as I can, but yet still be on the good side. Because that's what many Christians end up doing. They're like, how close to the line can I live but still be a Christian and go to heaven? And I've shared with you before, the goal isn't to stay close to the line. The goal, and what it means to be holy, is to get away from the line, to get closer and closer and closer to Jesus. And what happens is as you get away from that line and you're way over here, if you should do something that you accidentally slip even just a little bit and you had just a little bit closer to the line, guess what? You only got a little bit closer to the line, you didn't cross the line because the line's still way over there. But listen, if you're living right at the line and now you slip up a little bit, guess what? You've crossed back over into sin. And so that's why you, you've got to get serious about this. And you, you've got to have, and again, for me, I've put all kinds of like crazy things into my life to, to have accountability, to go to huge, huge extremes to make sure that I don't cross that line that I shouldn't cross. And it's got to be the same way for you. Whether it's accountability or if it's, you know, uh, 
get rid of your computer altogether or get rid of the internet or get rid of your smartphone. You know, whatever your sin is, go to extremes to get away from it. I know that sounds weird. I know it sounds radical. But Jesus said this, look, it's better for you if your eye is causing you to sin, to, to pluck your eye out and enter into heaven without your sight than it is to have all your vision but end up in hell. Now, let me be very, very clear here. Even a blind man can lust. So Jesus wasn't being literal, like, you know, pluck your eye out. But what he is saying is, be willing to go to extremes. Be willing to go to extremes in order to avoid the sin. Again, it's much easier to avoid it altogether than it is to simply resist it. Now, back to the story. It's now a year after the affair. Bathsheba's given birth to an infant son. And Nathan the prophet comes to David. Now, keep in mind, David's thought that he's covered all of his tracks on this. And Nathan's like, David, I need your advice on something. There's something going on in the, the kingdom right now. I heard this about uh, this guy, and I just need to know how, how we should deal with it. David's like, okay, wh what's going on? And Nathan says to him, well, there's two guys, and there's this one guy, he's like really, really rich. He's got like tons and tons and tons of sheep. He's got the big house and the fancy chariot. And I mean, he's just got, he's got everything he could ever possibly want. And then his next door neighbor is this guy. He only owns one sheep. He's pretty poor. He's just got one sheep. And he wouldn't even think about killing this thing because it's more like a family pet. I mean, the, the whole family just loves this sheep. And Nathan says, the, the rich man had somebody from out of town come in to visit. And he decided, you know, he's going to throw a big celebration, a, a big dinner party. Nathan says, here's where the story gets weird. The rich man, instead of killing one of his thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep that he owns, instead sneaks over into his neighbor's yard, steals his one beloved sheep, his only sheep, takes it and sacrifices it, and that's what he served up to his guests for dinner. Nathan's like, David, what do you think we should do here? David is livid. He's like, that man deserves to die. Nathan looks at him and he says, David, you are that man. David, you're the man that had everything. And you took from somebody else what belonged to them. Through Nathan, God speaks to David that I'm not pleased with what you did. It's like, David, you had everything and even the things that you didn't have, if you would have simply asked, I'd have given it to you. David, that's how much I love you. David, I kept you safe when Saul was trying to kill you. David, I made you the king, but yet you went and did this. And then if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses uh, 9 to 14.
Here's what God says. Why did you disobey me and do such a horrible thing? You murdered Uriah the Hittite by having the Ammonites kill him so that you could take his wife. Because you wouldn't obey me and took Uriah's wife for yourself, your family will never live in peace. Someone from your own family will cause you a lot of trouble, and I will take your wives and give them to another man before your very eyes. He will go to bed with them while everyone looks on. What you did was in secret, but I will do this in the open for everyone in Israel to see. And David said, I have disobeyed the Lord. Yes, you have, Nathan answered. You showed you didn't care what the Lord wanted, but he has forgiven you and you won't die, but your newborn son will. And the lesson, of course, is this. Sin can be forgiven, but yet it still has consequences. I mean, think about this story. The child dies. Uriah died. His friends, some of them died. And David's family is thrown into turmoil for generation after generation after generation to come. And, you know, as somebody that has the heart of an evangelist and that that's my spiritual gift, it's always difficult, you know, sharing these types of things because my heart wants to, to say to people, look, Jesus loves you and he, he died to forgive you. And, and he did. He, his grace is amazing. But yet there's also a balance to that, that you've got to realize that sin does have consequence. That you can't just keep doing the things that you've been doing and just saying, oh yeah, well, Jesus is going to end up forgiving me. Because that's not a true relationship with him. That's not true love. That's just using him. A true relationship means that you turn from your sin. That you give your full heart and life to him. I know some of you are going, okay, go over it. I don't want to have these consequences. I don't want to go through that. I'm going to turn from my sin. Is there anything else that I can do other than just avoid the temptation? The answer to that is yes. It's number four in your outline. I must be captivated by the beauty of the one true king. You know, the people, they, they wanted a king, and they got Saul. And they're like, well, wait, 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 we want a better king. And they ended up getting David. But both of those kings let them down. And as I said to you earlier, our king doesn't reside at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Our king doesn't come riding in on Air Force One. Our king has nothing to do with politics, whether it's Democrat, Republican, Independent. There is no human leader that is going to bring the solution to what we really need because what we really need is the forgiveness of our sin. And the one true king is Jesus, and only he can satisfy the longings of our soul. David's problem was he forgot that, and he had gotten captivated by the beauty of Bathsheba. Now, we're not going to get captivated by the beauty of Bathsheba, but all of us have a Bathsheba in our lives, whether it's physically a person or just some sin of some sort. There are things that compete and distract us from keeping our eyes on Jesus, giving our full heart and, and life to him. So the question is, what is the Bathsheba in your life? What is it that's keeping you from God fully? Here's what we need to realize. The only way to resist that type of beauty of a Bathsheba in our lives is to replace it with something of even greater beauty. 
let me explain it to you this way. And again, I'll just use lust as an example. Did you realize that, that lust can be turned on and off like a light switch? You're going, not me, man. Man, when I'm, when I'm raring to go, I'm raring to go. But no, it can be turned on. Let me explain. Imagine that you are a, uh, a college guy, right? You're in college. Hormones are raging. And you're in your dorm with your girlfriend, which you shouldn't be all alone because why? That's putting yourself in a tempting spot, right? But you're all alone there. Hormones are raging. You're at 100, and you're thinking, okay, here we go. It's on. Not turning back. And so you start getting hot and heavy with your girlfriend. Again, lust is like 100. But then all of a sudden, her Navy SEAL dad comes bursting through the door. Yeah, when he just did the action, what happened? It's like a light switch. <laughs> Don't go there. But it's true. <laughs> Lust level goes to zero. Why? Because all of a sudden, there's something of greater value. Your life. <laughs> right? You replaced one thing with something of greater value. And that's what I'm saying to you here this morning. Any sin, you've got to replace it with something of greater value. And who is the something of greater value? That is, of course, Jesus. Look, many guys say to me, you know what? My problem is my sex drive is just too strong. No, 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 no. The problem is your love for Jesus is just too weak. Yes, you may have a, a high lust level, and again, whether it's sexual temptation or it's any other thing. Yes, your level for whatever it is, it may be really, really high, but you need to replace it with something that's even higher. You don't have to learn to love your sexual urges less. Just learn to love Jesus more. You're going, okay, go, how, how do I do that? It's like a button I can push. It's going to make me love Jesus more. Do I, do I need to give more to the church? What, what do I need to do? And the answer to that is no. Because what Jesus wants, how do you take your level of, of relationship to a higher level? And that is you just spend more time with them. It's like any relationship. And how do we spend time with Jesus? How does he speak to us? You guys answer this. How does he speak to us? Primarily. Through the word, through the Bible. So you get in and you just keep reading and how do we communicate back to him right that's just a fancy word for talking about god prayer just talk to him it's just this relationship where he's speaking to you this is his love letter to you and you're just speaking back to him and you develop this relationship with him and as you get to know him more as you read his word what you're going to see is that he is the one true king. A king that says, you know what? Yeah, I want you to serve me, but I'm going to serve you even more. 
A king that says, yes, you deserve to die for your sin, but I love you so much that I'm going to die for you. A king that says, I'm not going to lord my power over you, but instead I'm going to give you my power to live in you. And the more you read about Jesus, the more you become captivated by this king who loves you so much and wants only what's best for you. And what happens is, as you do that, you're going to get to the place where you're going to say no to sin. Again, not because sin isn't fun. You're going to start saying no to sin because your love for Jesus is even greater and stronger than your desire for that sin. One of Jesus' three best friends while he was on the earth, his name was John. And John, later, he's writing about this great love that he experienced with Jesus and the love that God the Father has for us. And he writes this, he says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, See how very much our Father loves us? For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. And then he continues on, he says, Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ returns. But we do know that we will be like him. See him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. So why do we keep ourselves pure? Is it afraid, because we're afraid of getting caught? No. Is it because of all the, the guilt and the shame that we have? No. We keep ourselves pure because we're so in love with Jesus. We're so grateful for who he is and what he's done for us that you know, he says that you, my church, you're my bride. And so we keep ourselves pure because we know that one day he's going to return for his bride and that we're going to be married with him forever and ever and ever. And like a bride, we want to be able to say to him, I've kept myself pure, Jesus, for you. And so again, I don't know what your sin is, whether it's a sexual sin like it was for David or if it's something else. But learn these lessons from David here. Learn these lessons. That sin will destroy your life. And you've got to get engaged in the battle. You've got to stay engaged in the battle because if you're engaged in the battle, you won't have time for your sin. You've got to just Keep on staying captivated by him. And remember who he is and all that he's done for you. I've said this before. Christianity isn't rocket science. It's actually pretty easy. It's just all about loving God and loving others. If you'll do that with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, love God, love others, then you will keep yourself pure for when he returns. Let's pray. Father, we uh, do thank you for this opportunity we've had to come in and uh, look at, once again, this, this life of David. And Lord, we do thank you that you do forgive sin. That David the murderer, David the adulterer, was forgiven by you. And yet there still was consequences. So, Lord, I pray that we would just collectively as a, a church body and individually just confess our sins to you right now. Yeah, we may be able to hide these things from other people, but we're not hiding it from you. You see every single thing that we do. 
And so, Lord, forgive us of our sin. Help us to turn from that sin. Help us to not try to live close to the line, but to, to live holy just as you are holy. To be pure just as you are pure. And Lord, help us not to delay in that because the more we delay, the, the greater those consequences are going to become in our lives. We have got to act on your word. Take those next steps right here and right now. And so again, thank you for your forgiveness, but thank you as well that you give us wisdom in what the next steps are that we need to take to hopefully minimize any of those consequences that may already be in our lives. Jesus, thank you that there is no sin that is too powerful. That you've already overcome that sin. You paid for that sin on the cross. And for all of us that have a relationship with you, that we don't have to walk in that anymore. That, that before, that, that the, the pool of sin was like gravity. But you've broken that gravity. That now if we choose to stay in that sin, it's because we've chosen to stay in it. Not that we're forced to be in it. So help us to become captivated by who you are. to just see how great and awesome your love and your grace and your mercy truly is. <clears throat> and to just simply say, <clears throat> that love <clears throat> for you, Jesus, is even greater than my love for this sin. Lord, help us just to pursue you with everything that we have for all the days of our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.